hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Have you ever asked, why didn't they teach us about money in grade school? Did you ever say I would have gotten way more out of a lesson on budgeting than all those calculus classes? If you've ever asked or said anything like these, there's now an answer. And that's the new book, How to Money, Your Ultimate Visual Guide to the Basics of Finance by Gene Chatsky and Catherine Tuggle. And we're excited to share that they're both here with us to talk about their book, as well as the gender and racial pay gap, why we buy things we don't need, and how to start buying things we actually value. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 340, and today we're learning how to money. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Cool. Welcome, Gene Chatsky and Catherine Tuggle to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you both. Excited to see you guys. Thanks Again. for having us. Of course. Thank you so much. I have to say, I love your book. I feel like it is the financial advice that everyone needs to receive from their older sister that none of us got when we were younger. I mean, just the whole book is just very endearing. And I love the way that you, you, you explained everything from credit scores to how to pay off credit card debt to the concerns to think about with regard to student loan debt. So I just I just love it through and through, and I I, th- I think more and more people, even those who maybe aren't your target demographic, should read it because there's a lot of great fundamental information in there. So, with that, I'm curious. I'll start with Eugene. What was your inspiration for writing the book? Uh, we wanted to be those older sisters that we didn't have, quite frankly. I mean, we we both, and I'll speak for me, Catherine. I won't I won't serve you up, but made a lot of mistakes when we were younger and mistakes that we shouldn't have made. In my case, definitely mistakes I shouldn't have made. I just didn't know better. And and having some financial grounding before you're thrust into this adult world is really important, right? We're asking young people to take on so much responsibility when it comes to student loans and credit cards and saving early for their futures because there are no more pensions and yet we're not telling them how to do it and so this is this is just our way of of helping helping spread that knowledge a little bit yeah i mean neither jean nor i have older sisters so i think maybe this is the book that we wish we had been handed but we weren't and you know really we we got to thinking with all our work at her money where we talk to people about career negotiation and budgeting and and your first salary and all this stuff, there wasn't a single primer to hand a young woman or young man as they're graduating college or as they're graduating high school. We, we started thinking like, what would you give somebody if you wanted to kind of give them the money 101 Bible? And, and so we wrote it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Jean, you brought up a, a great point more of the onus of financial security even and success has now been put on the individual because there are fewer pensions available to folks. 
but we're not providing people the enough of the tools and resources that they they can have to be empower themselves to make better decisions throughout their life. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting. I, I just was scanning through some of our old memes that we post from time to time. And one of the ones that just caught my attention this morning, but you kind of reminded me again of it, Gene, was this idea that we're taught how to spend long before we're taught how to save or plan for the future, or if if we're ever taught that, right? There are some financial things that we're kind of instructed in life early on, right? What it's more often than not, it's through things like allowance, maybe, or just the fact that we watch our parents spend, but we never understand all of the basics behind money and the financial math that I think if we just knew a little bit of it, our lives would be a lot better when we're heading off into, whether it's heading off into college or out into the world. Look, our parents were raised in this era of financial secrecy, many of us. And and when surveys are done and they ask kids who they rely on for money advice, the answer is always above and beyond the parent. And yet the parents, many of Many of them, many of us don't feel competent teaching our own kids. And so instead of teaching them what to do, we just say nothing. And, and as a result, kids come out and they're at a loss. I mean, you, you brought up the topic of allowance and I even think we do allowance wrong. You know, when we just hand our kids money and say, here's your 20 bucks for the week or whatever, whatever it happens to be, we aren't teaching them how to use money as a tool, which is what it is, right? We we have to, if we're going to give them an allowance, whether or not they do chores to earn it, we need to be saying, these are the things that are on your list to buy, no longer on my list to buy. And you have to take your money and figure out how to stretch it in order to cover those things that you want and and to make decisions about which of those things you're going to spend or use your money for and which ones you're not. And the fact that you might have to save up a couple of weeks in order to get some of those things. I mean, when allowance works well, it actually does impart those lessons. The problem is that many, many households do it very badly. Two things. One, Jane, can I be your kid so I can get $20 a week for allowance? I never got anything near that. My kids um, never got $20 never. a week, by the way. But, uh, you know, we're living in this era right. of rampant inflation. I mean, right. I, I think maybe kids today are are getting a little bit a little bit more money. My kids, what was the max that they got? I think they maybe max got like 10 to 15 but I was a very bad allowance giver myself until I figured out how to do it electronically and and to and I set up bank accounts where they would get that money, you know, through automatic transfers. I was I was terrible. I would they would come to me and they would say, "You owe me five weeks," and I would give it to them because I would figure that they're right. <laughs> oh, how funny! I think the other important point here you kind of mentioned this whole idea of. At the in the past, money was a topic that we just didn't talk about. But in so many cases, especially with with women and girls, money was used as a leverage point by men, right? And and so whether it was intentional or not, 
money was maybe just not talked about in with the primary breadwinner in the house at the time, right? And generationally, thanks to people like Eugene and Catherine and other women who are out there talking about how important it is for women to know and understand, I think that's where we're starting to see this is maybe one of the areas where trickle-down economics is actually working because <laughs> it's knowledge that's trickling down to younger women and to girls about how important it is for them to be their own sugar daddy and and be able to rely on themselves financially be prepared for themselves financially i think that's kind of the whole impetus behind this yeah i mean you know when we were writing the book there's a list at the top of the book where we talk about life goals and we talk about traveling the world starting a business one of the things that we do not mention is getting married or having a baby, because those are the messages that women are getting reinforced in every magazine, in every movie, in every TV show as what is going to be the pinnacle of their lives. And we wanted to try to show that, you know, you're going to have some big life goals that don't even come close to involving a man. You're going to be doing it all on your own. And I do think that the tide is turning. You know, I grew up in rural Alabama and my mom came from a very traditional home, but she was very progressive for somebody born in 1945 rural Alabama. And she raised me with a little more feminist grit than she was raised, you know, and, and now we are projecting the messages that I think the young women coming up today need to hear, which is that, you know, you are in the driver's seat, you are in control. And I got to tell you, as the person who admits women into our private Harmony Facebook group, the things that I see every day only reinforce for me even more how much our content is needed. Because I would say half of the women who request to join our group, we always ask why. And across the board, we hear them say, I'm getting a divorce. I have no money management skills. I have no idea what to do from here. I've never worked. I've been a stay-at-home mom. I ceded complete control of my financial life to my husband. And now I need the skills that is going to help me live a fruitful, successful financial life. But what I think we're doing now is we're giving that information and we're giving that empowerment to girls as they are graduating high school and college. So they're never going to be in a position to be 40 and 50 and not at least know the basics. Yeah, that's the goal. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Yeah, yeah I love that you're empowering women that way. I guess. I'm still surprised that the number is 50% of women feel like they don't have any knowledge with which to run. It seems daunting I, almost. I, I wonder if we surveyed men. I mean, if they if we surveyed men honestly, where the number would shake out. I, I think a lot of people don't feel that they have the knowledge to run their own financial lives. I think I think men are a little bit better at faking it until they make it. And and by the way, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think as women, if we all waited until we had every bit of the knowledge, 
necessary to manage our money perfectly, none of us would ever get started. And that's particularly true with investing. When we, we've done a lot of research at Her Money, particularly in the last year with one of our partners, the Alliance for Lifetime Income. And one of the things that, that we found is, you know, no surprise, women still feel as if we don't have all the tools when it comes to investing our money, particularly to cope with modern challenges like inflation and higher interest rates and things like that. The problem with investing and the reason that one of the things that we've embarked on recently is a is a course called Investing Fix, where we are teaching women investing in real time, is that you got to do it along the way. You can't wait until you feel like you know it all before you do it, or you will never, ever get started because there are no perfect answers. You have to be satisfied with the good enough. And the only way to realize that the good enough actually will get you from here to retirement is to get in there and start doing it. Absolutely. I like that kind of goes back to Voltaire's quote, right? Perfect is the enemy of the good, right? And you kind of have to take your lumps as you're managing your money, especially with investing, right? Everybody has that stock that they didn't sell soon enough or didn't buy early enough. And you know, you kind of got to take those lumps and if nothing else, it gives you those war stories, but you've got the experience so you can make smarter decisions in the future. Yeah. And look, the markets go down and your portfolio was going to go down as the market goes down. Fortunately, historically, the markets go up more than they go down. And so if you're in it, if you're if you're just in the market, diversified, you're going to be fine. It's it's when we try to second guess ourselves and and think that we're smarter than the trends and that that we're smarter than history that we get in trouble. Okay, you're making me feel a little bit better about the market right now. I'll hold on. <laughs> it's been a little yeah. tenuous well, lately. And I think for better or for worse, I think what we see a lot of right now, especially on social media, is this comparison game, right? Everyone is throwing out there how well they've done with this or that. And so we feel a level of insecurity when we see people do that and we say, oh, I'm not doing as well. I don't know enough. And, and so that may cause some of us to shy away from wanting to invest or, or actually do the things that are good for us financially. One of the other things I love about the book is throughout it, you provide Q&As on life and money lessons from a diverse set of women. And I was impressed you had Congresswoman Ilan Omar, co-founder of SoGal Ventures, Pocket Sun, and transgender advocate Jazz Jennings. And then you also had a, a very poignant piece by Javasia Harris-Bowser titled, Dear Black Girl, How what I would say to my teenage self about the racial wage gap. I, that one, that particular story really, really struck me because it just really felt like it came from her heart. Why was this level of diversity important to you? I think it sort of touches on what you were talking about earlier, Catherine, of the, the, all the various kinds of women that come into the Her Money group. Why was it important for you to represent that diverse set of women in this book? I'm so glad you asked. It was it was my number one goal, honestly, in writing this book. We profile 13 women. Nine of them are women of color. I'm a mixed race woman from rural Alabama. I grew up selling vegetables with my grandfather on the side of the road, shopping at thrift stores for my prom dresses. You know, I really wanted to keep this very, very real and not shy away from addressing every single topic that women are going to face: the gender wage gap, the racial wealth gap. 
Javasia is actually a friend of mine from Alabama, and she has written extensively about this topic. She is our senior contributor at Her Money. She tackles all of these topics for us. She is not afraid to tackle all of these difficult topics with us. You know, for example, this August was supposed to be Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Black Women's Equal Pay Day, due to the pandemic and the struggles that women of color have faced, has been pushed back to September. You know, so we are constantly addressing these things on our website and in our newsletters. And it was important for us to have a living testament to the racial wealth gap in the book. And we thought that Gervasia's piece really, really spoke to us. So you do talk about the the wage gap, both for women and uh, various races, through all throughout your book. Unfortunately, the LGBTQ community has can relate to that because there's a sexual orientation and gender identity wage gap. But we particularly love how you encourage your readers to advocate for a fair wage from their very first job. And I've never really thought about it in this context before, but it's sort of like it's compound interest, but in, in, in the positive direction. And if you don't set that baseline, that high enough baseline from the get go you can really hurt yourself in the long run. Would you mind explaining that or that effect of compounding interest with your salary? Uh, Sure. Happy to dive into that. And by the way, you guys should take credit for your research. I mean, you you have been out there producing great studies on, on LGBTQ finance for years now. So, so pat yourselves on the back for that. (laughs) I can't take credit for this research necessarily either. It it was a study that came out of Carnegie Mellon University that a couple of professors did well over a decade ago, and they made the point that when you don't negotiate for that very first job, every raise that you get, every salary increase that you get is going to key off of that first salary. So if you let's just say that you you stay at one company for a very very long time even if what you're getting are cost of living increases every year they're going to be based on a on a lower starting number now hopefully you're switching jobs because that's the best way to get a, a decent pay bump especially now and one of the the really positive changes that we've started to see in the landscape when it comes to salary negotiations is that in many states, it's now illegal for a person interviewing you to ask you what you're making in your current job. You do not have to tell them. And for that reason, you can simply point to the value of your skill set as you read it based on sites like payscale.com and glassdoor.com and salary.com. And you can and should be using want ads as sort of fodder to get a sense of what your skills are worth on the open market. You should also, by the way, in any job, ask for the range that is being paid for that job so that you can get a sense of where you fit in that range based on your skill set. It doesn't necessarily mean that the company is going to have a range. Big companies tend to have these these salary tranches and and smaller companies tend tend not to, but it definitely can't hurt to ask. Yeah, I love that. I didn't know myself until recently that it was illegal for a hiring manager or employer to ask you what your previous salary was. I, I gave that out so many times. Yeah, <laughs> I probably I hurt myself. It's so common in, in the, <laughs> the days when we were working in corporate that we just were asked that. 
And the other new yeah. trend that I love and that you advocate for in the book is encouraging your readers and listeners to start sharing their salaries more. That's that's a new phenomenon for, for us anyway. And I remember back in our days when we worked for W-2s, it was against company policy to even talk about your salary. So Catherine, can you share the, share your advice on, on, on why women should do that or all of us should do that and maybe some ideas on how to do that? Yeah. Whenever we talk about salary, I think about in my first job, there was a group of women. I was one of them. We were all hired at $47,500. And after about three or four years, one of my first friends got a new job elsewhere. And she came to us and she said, I am going to be paid $90,000 a year. And if I had stayed here, with my little incremental 3% annual raise, she was like, I, I would have been, I wouldn't have been making this much money until I was 75 years old. Now, I don't know if her math was accurate, but I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like this is what happens when you job hop. I suddenly had this context that, oh, my job, some people are paying $90,000 for somebody to do my job. Like I, I have to get out there. I have to start looking. So I think this is the power of sharing this information. Now, I think in the past, maybe someone would have said, oh, she's bragging about her salary. She can't come to you knowing that you're making 47.5 and tell you about her new like $90,000 salary. Like that's, that's not right of her to do that. I think the new way of looking at this is to say, how beautiful is it that she is empowering other women in her circle to know their worth? And I think that we can't be shy about sharing these things. Because even if you do suspect that you're out earning somebody, it's not going to shame them. It's going to empower them. And I think that's that's the way that women are starting to perceive this now. And it makes me really happy. We had a guest on the Her Money podcast a couple of years ago, and I'm sure Catherine will remember this too. Her name's Meredith Rollins, and she was at one point the editor of a, a, a big national women's magazine, and she was leaving to take a different job at a sister publication. And she actually sat down with the woman taking her job and said, this is how much money you have to ask for, right? She actually helped her negotiate. And I just remember thinking, what a great example. Like, this is how we bring other women along. This is how we bring other women up. And I've been very happy to see younger women doing a lot more of this than women my age have traditionally done and sharing sharing real numbers and and helping each other along it's i think it's a real positive yeah I, I love that that brings me to my point though it's it's a huge paradigm shift for all of us to now talk about our salary because one I mean, i'm sure you can both relate when i was growing up we weren't even allowed to talk about money because it was impolite and you don't definitely don't talk about your salary because to, to catherine's point it, it sounds like you're talking yourself up and it's, it's, it's in, unkind. What you're doing is, is really empowering people. Yeah. And I, I wonder some of that is some masculinity involved with the competition, right? For men, a higher salary is oftentimes a point of competition, right? So maybe that's why in part it became a taboo topic is because they didn't like that competition or they didn't people didn't feel comfortable with that kind of competition because there wasn't a way to keep up. But now we have some femininity coming into it, which is the more let's take care of more people with what we have. That's why the future is feminine. 
<laughs> I do think you're right. I think that more females in leadership, I think that there is, there is more of a, I don't want to say backlash, but I think that we as a society have started to feel that corporate America is maybe not the bad guy, but that it's, it's us against them. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think before there was this mentality that like, oh, I can't do anything to upset the boss. I can't do anything that might offend this corporate entity that I work for. And I think now like there's more of a power to the people movement, largely brought on by more women in leadership. But I do think that more of us are saying like, we got to protect each other. We got to watch out for each other. The, the veil has been lifted. We all know that corporations goal is to make money right? They want to make money. They want to have the best shareholder report they can possibly generate. So we have to fight for ourselves as people, as humans, as humanity. And I think it's working. Yeah, hundred percent. I have to give a lot of credit to the millennials, Gen Z, and then I'll couple that with post-COVID. And that's why we're huge fans of the great resignation, because it sort of seems like people are saying, you know what, I'm not going to put up with a garbage job with a garbage salary. I need to be paid commensurate to the work I'm doing or and the value that I provide. And I love that. What else can we do to equalize wages for minorities or marginalized communities? Do you have any further suggestions beyond sharing salaries and making sure you, you work on that, that baseline job offer? Jean? Well, I think, I mean, I think there is an onus on employers to do this as well. Right. I mean, it's not, it's great that workers feel empowered to advocate for themselves, but employers also have to step it up and make sure that they are not only hiring a more diverse crowd, a more diverse staff, a more diverse team, but also paying those people in a way that reflects their experience, their skills that they're not looking at it through a gendered or racial lens, that they're really looking at what is the price to do this job and is everybody being paid equitably? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point there. For some folks, no amount of encouragement or empowerment will actually get them to the point where they would actually say to their boss, "That's this isn't fair. Yeah. I, I, right. So we do need those fair bosses out there who are saying, hey, I, I'm going to do things fairly so that these people who sometimes don't have the confidence to speak up for themselves, or, you know, we talk about some folks who maybe their mental health state is not in a state where they would be able to do that. They mm-hmm. can do their job 100% great, but their mental health state may not be in a place where they can do that for themselves. I was speaking to a, a friend of mine from college whose whose child is entering the workforce now. And he said that, you know, the weirdest thing happened. The employer called and increased the starting salary with nothing happened. You know, nothing happened. And this child did not ask for a raise, didn't, there was no outreach. It was just, we're increasing the starting salary. And we had this whole conversation about what happened behind the scenes in order to lead to that. And, you know, my suspicion is they're, they're leveling up. You know, the employer was put in the position by somebody else who was coming in to do a similar job and they ended up agreeing to pay that person more. And so they were leveling up because we're now in this era of additional salary transparency. That's, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Great news. Do you have any sense if that's sort of 
broad and it's affecting other industries and companies or you think this it's is, still you know just an anecdote anecdotal. of one <laughs> anecdote anecdote of one yeah. well i'll share here's a personal experience when i i left working for one company large very a massive financial services company and went to work for another one smaller one but not so small i started negotiating my salary and when they came back with a yes they actually offered me a thousand dollars more than what i had asked for and i thought that was so bizarre that they actually were were giving me more and then when i went and had my first kind of introductory meeting with my boss my boss laid it out on the line and says in this job you work 40 hours a week plus or minus if you're working more than 45 hours consistently either i'm doing something wrong as a boss or because i'm giving you too much work or we need to hire more people and i thought to myself I was working 55 hours at the previous company making $15,000 less and they could care less that that's the situation I was in. So I think yeah there there are some employers that are starting to wake up mm-hmm. and realize when they say that they treat their people well they treat their actually do treat their people well. It's also just not it's not just about salary though either, right? Like I think that we all have to be allies. We all have to be eagle-eyed in our jobs and our careers, wherever we work, what we hear time and time again from women of color in our community is that they consistently feel passed over for big projects. They consistently feel unheard. And I think all of us, particularly cisgender white males have an obligation to say, you know what, actually, I think that that was her idea. You know, that's actually what you just brought up in the meeting is something that, you know, Samantha had echoed to me a couple of weeks prior. We have to consistently work to elevate the voices of people who are marginalized and we have to make sure that they do get put on the best projects and that they do get put on a track to advancement. You know, we can't just sit back and expect that companies will pay people more and give people more opportunities because it's the right thing to do. A lot of companies have made great strides towards that, but I think that no matter where you fall on the totem pole at your company, you can make sure that people are put in the best position possible. Preach. I love it. (laughs) That's wonderful. I want to tack just a little bit because it's great to earn a lot of money, but as we all know from bad experience, not necessarily how much money you make, but it's oftentimes how much money you spend. And you talk in the end of chapter nine about the mood boost that comes from your purchases and then the post-purchase mood crash, which is what we've called before on this show, the debt depression spiral. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on that mood boost and post-purchase mood crash phenomena a little bit? Catherine? Yeah. We know that when we click add to cart and when we see our inbox fill up with the congratulatory emails from our favorite retailer, letting us know that the package is winging its way towards us, we get a little surge of dopamine. You know, this is the same chemical that we get when we eat chocolate or have sex. It's telling us that this is a very good thing. It's a very good thing that you just spent that money. Congratulations. You just spent that money. The companies that we're buying from are reinforcing that message. Instagram is reinforcing that message when we see that, oh, our favorite influencer also has that. I was influenced this morning. I was like looking at this skims dress. That's like this gorgeous dress that like everybody's wearing, but they're probably all Photoshop. So I'm probably not going to look like that when the skims dress arrives at my doorstep. And then I think 
the crash comes into place, when we see how much money we spend, when we do get back to reality and we do check our budget and we do check our credit card statement and everything's costing people more now, you know, like there was just a study from TransUnion that we wrote about today, that credit card debt is higher than ever. So people are coping with the rising costs right now by putting more on their credit card, which is one of the most dangerous things that you can be doing if we are headed into a recession, as many economists say that we are. So, you know, the crash comes later. It's like the spending hangover. But while you're spending, it feels really good. I think the trick, the key is to know that that hangover is coming, right? Yeah. I drink a lot less than I used to because I know the hangover is coming. <laughs> and I spend a lot less than I used to because I know the hangover is coming. And if you can build that habit and build that muscle over time, you'll just be so much more consistently happy. Right. So we got to stop drinking as much to have less hangover. <laughs> <Fewer> hangovers. <laughs> no more. What do, they, what do they call it? Drunk spending on, on Amazon. Sip and click. Sip and click. Thank you. I'm actually such a good shopper on Amazon. I can order stuff and get it the same day, which David just found out yesterday. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a my... skill you do not want to advertise. No, no. no definitely not. <laughs> The reason Some I of my ask- girlfriends once like drunk bought like initial necklaces, but like it wasn't their initial. <laughs> so now like this group of my girlfriends is walking around with like Z and V and like P and Q like around their neck and they have no idea like why, but that's what they bought when they were drunk. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. The reason I want to ask that question is because you also talk about in chapter 10, an exercise of reflecting on your past purchases to assess how they make you feel in hindsight. I've never heard of that exercise before, but I think it's a brilliant exercise to do because I think so often we don't even think about our, our past purchases. We kind of just think about the what they cost. And we forget about valuing what we actually just bought. So would Jean, would you mind elaborating on that exercise a bit, please? Sure. It's it's a way of figuring out how your spending lines up with your values actually. And and so, you know, I'm sure that your listeners being your listeners have gone through the process of tracking their spending. If they haven't, just tracking is incredibly powerful and eye-opening. But the twist here is that after you track for a couple of weeks or a month, you go back and you look at those purchases again and ask yourself the question, would I do it over? Would I spend this money again? And when you find yourself saying yes, you know that that was a purchase that lines up with the things that you truly value. And when the answer is no, you realize that it it doesn't. And my favorite story about this is a guy that I was coaching. I had him do this, both the tracking portion and then the values portion. And he went back through and found that like many, many people, he was spending a huge amount of money on eating out. And he thought about the expenditure itself and decided that really what he valued was the time spent eating meals with friends. And so instead of saying, I'm not going to do this anymore, he said, I'm not going to go to restaurants that are quite this expensive anymore. I'm still going to have just as many meals out with my friends. I'm still going to have these social experiences, which are the things that we do typically value. I'm just going to spend less with each one. And so, you know, whether you decide that food is the biggest budget buster 
bar none, right? Whether it's takeout or whether it's coffee or whether it's restaurants or whether these days, whether it's groceries, whether you decide you're just going to skip the appetizer or the dessert and just go straight for the entree or that you're going to do an appetizer dessert combo and skip the entree. Like however you want to hack it, figuring out how to spend less while still getting that social experience is going to work for a lot of people. I love that. Notice how she didn't include wine in any of those questions. <laughs> yeah, we're not skipping that. That's <laughs> it, it, it is interesting you say, you say this. I remember one of the coaching clients that we had, he said, he emailed us and he said, after doing the exercise of analyzing his spending, he said, I can't believe I spend so much money on things that don't really matter to me. Because I think that we get so over time, whether it's lifestyle creep or the the social group that we hang out with or the habits that we have, we kind of maybe brought from our previous life, our family or 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 wherever, we get so accustomed to these things being normal and we have to have them in our life, but they're not actually truly adding that much value to our lives, but they're adding potentially a lot of financial stress or taking away a lot of opportunity for what that money could be doing for our future. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hyper or not hyperbolic. That's hedonic treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be smart for a minute. <laughs> so I, again, I have to say, I, I, I love this book. It's just, it's very well written. It's, I think it's, it's great for a lot of people to read or listen to, even if you're old, you know, young, young adult or even older, but most of our listeners happen to be men, happen to be gay men. Any suggestions on what we or our listeners can, or viewers can do to get the message out about this great book to share it with their nieces and nephews or whatever, any suggestions? I'll throw to you, Catherine. Well, thank you. I would say, yeah, it's the kind of the perfect graduation gift for high school or college. Great birthday gift. I also think if you've got a niece or nephew or a child who's even like a very precocious 12-year-old, I think could get a lot out of this book. And if you know somebody who's like saving for a 529 and the kid is getting older, it would be a nice thing to say, here's your book. And also I just contributed to your 529. I think the options are, are really endless. I think it's a fun book. It's illustrated. I love, I love the picture. So it's not, we've tried to make it really engaging. So I do think that, you know, a child will find it compelling and yeah, you post on social media. We would, we would absolutely love that and support your local bookseller. The graphics in it are great. I forget who was the artist again. Do you remember? Her name's Nina Cosford. Yeah, it was. Good. She's got a really big Instagram following. She's just she's she's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. So, to wrap up, if our listeners or, or viewers connected with any of this, they want to track you down. Where exactly are you? Can people find you online or anywhere else, Jean? <laughs> sure. So I'm at Jean Chatsky across social platforms. Catherine is at Catherine Tuggle across social platforms. And they can find us at Hermoney, hermoney.com and the Hermoney podcast. We hope that they'll dip in and, and see if they like our show as well. Awesome. And Catherine, anything you want to follow up with? Yeah. If you want to get our podcasts and our newsletters and hear from me and Jean personally, we would love to have you sign up at hermoney.com backslash subscribe and you will get all of our up to the minute information. And yeah, we'd love to see you guys on the internet. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at capitalone.com. That's capitalone.com.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. Here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. As Catherine suggested, and if you're a good gunkle, you'll do this, buy a hard copy of the book, How to Money, Your Ultimate Visual Guide to the Basics of Finance, and give it to a girl or young woman in your life. They'll be surprised at how much this book will empower her. Then join us on Thursday when we talk about the crazy high number of LGBTQ plus Americans who do not have access to a company-sponsored retirement account. Then join us next Tuesday when we talk about transgender rights and money with founder of the Trans Empowerment Project, Jack Knoxville. Thanks again and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.